I I want to do uh, tonight somewhat of an overview of fasting, and I want us to consider what the scriptures say about fasting. It'll be kind of a general kind of thing, just looking at the Old and New Testament about fasting, in hopes that it will help us uh, in this next week as we spend time praying and fasting. So let me start by simply saying this. Most of you, if not all of you already, know know what fasting is. Um, And beyond that, most, if not all of you, have fasted before. Let me kind of explain that, because you might be saying, I don't know what it is, and I haven't done it before. Um... So I want you to imagine for yourself whether maybe a situation in school where you had something due, something that needed to be done, maybe something at work that needed to be done, and you had some kind of deadline, and you knew that it was coming close to that time. And so you're working, you're at work, or you're working on something for school, and you realize lunchtime comes around or dinner time comes around. And you realize, I, I can't stop and eat, because if I stop and eat, I'm not going to get this done. And so, and, and, and again, you can obviously make that for whatever situation you might think of in your own life. It's a pretty regular situation for Sergio and I, where, you know, we, we have lunch brought with us, and we, we never get around to heating it up and eating it, because we're constantly going to this place or that place and, you know, having to go to different calls. But in any of those scenarios, has anybody, has that happened to at least everybody in this room? Whether it's work, school, something, where, where you say, I'm not, I can't even think about eating right now. I'm not even, forget eating, I got to do this, right? If that's happened to you, please. Like, I just need to know, okay, everybody in here, that has happened to, right? Now, you might think, okay, well, sure, that's fine and all. I get that. I've done that. But how does that have anything with fasting in a biblical sense? But the fact of the matter is, that is not so radically different from fasting as we might think. Because in that scenario, what, what did you do? You set aside food because there was something else that was of more importance to you. You realized, I could eat, but I'm not going to eat. I don't want to eat, because I have to do this other thing instead. The other thing was more important than the food was. And I want you to understand is that when it comes to biblical fasting, the concept is the same. It is simply the motivation that changes. But the concept is exactly the same. So, brethren, biblical fasting is a hunger for God above all other things. It is a hunger for God's help. It is a hunger for God's guidance. A hunger for God's presence in our midst. A hunger for God's glory to be manifested. For the Lord to to do something in our midst to grant us something that we desire of Him. And you know what, brethren? What happens 
when we begin to fast in that manner, food simply becomes an afterthought. It's just not important anymore. Brethren, it's when we long for the Lord and His help in such a way that food becomes a distraction from what we really want, from what we really desire. We'll cast off everything. Even the thing that literally sustains our being, food itself, we're going to cast it off. Because you know what? Without God's help in whatever it is that we're seeking it, having the food is not, it's who cares? If we don't receive what we're seeking from the Lord in His help, His guidance, His power, His spirit, whatever it is, and we're fasting and we're seeking the Lord for it, the point is that food becomes irrelevant because this is to me of supreme importance. This is my greatest need. You know this is true, brethren. Man does not live by bread alone. And we've got to actually function like that on a daily basis. And so fasting is a hunger for God that surpasses your hunger for food. There was a, there was a um, interview that Paul Washer gave. It's, it's small, maybe 10 minutes. And they're asking him about fasting. And they asked him, Brother, can you give us like a definition of what fasting is? And he gave a definition that's kind of similar to what I had shared with you guys. But he said this. He said, what if I had planned some fishing trip for like a year? Me and a few of my friends, we were going to go fishing. And we planned this whole thing out. We had it on our schedules. And it's finally the day of the fishing trip. And we're packing the truck. And we're out there. And I might get some of these details right, but I know it's something like this. So he says, we're out, we're out packing the truck and we're getting everything ready to, to leave. And my son is out in the road and he gets hit by a truck. The fishing trip in my mind is now so unimportant because something else of such great need has entered in. And for someone to come up to me and say, hey, Paul, what do you think about the fishing trip? <laughs> He'd be like, get out of here. I don't even care about the fishing trip. My son just got hit by a truck. This is my need right now. And again, we're thinking about fasting. We've got to think this way. Um, We'll get into some more things later about what can be problematic in fasting. But this is how we ought to think, brethren, in terms of fasting. It is that our need for God, His help, His presence, His gifts, His whatever it is, brethren, that we're fasting and seeking the Lord for, that it becomes for us, it is our greatest need. And that food, it's just get it out of here. I don't want to think about it because I got my mind focused on one thing. And this is what this week we are wanting to give ourselves to. This is what we're wanting to give our attention to in this week of prayer and fasting. That the people of God, that you all, would devote yourselves to seeking the Lord. To seek Him in a, a special way. <coughs> to set aside food. For times of desperate prayer, for God's help, for God's guidance to us as a church. Brethren, you know this, that it is the Lord who upholds and sustains us. He upholds and sustains us as individuals and He does it as a church. And if we forget that, and if we forget Him, He will forget us. 
That's, that's the promise that David gave to Solomon. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But what's the opposite side of that? If you forsake him, he will forsake you. So, brethren, we've got to, we don't, we don't want to be left abandoned by the Lord. We want to seek his help. We want to be useful to the master. We need to fast and pray to that end that we would be useful financially, that we would be useful in supporting the work of missions, that we would be useful in evangelizing this city, that we would be useful in discipling others into maturity, rather in whatever way that we would be useful to Christ. And this is uh, this time of, of prayer and fasting is what it's intended for us to do, to draw near the Lord, to receive from Him some spiritual benefit, some spiritual help in our lives and, and in the church. So what I want to do then is kind of at least give you guys a good overview here of the Scriptures. So let's begin to look at that and see what the Scriptures have to say about fasting and how they might encourage us. We're going to look at, we're going to look at a lot of things both in the Old and the New Testament in terms of fasting. But the fact of the matter is this, the Old Testament does not give us a lot of, of um, teaching on fasting. There's not a practice of fasting, not a lot of teaching on fasting. So when we're going to get to the New Testament, we're going to see where we kind of get some instruction on fasting <coughs> and what it's going to look like. So I have a handful of texts here, but let me ask you guys, um, can you think of passages in uh, the Old Testament or fasting, where people are fasting? Just the Old Testament. Situations in the Old Testament where people are fasting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's go look at that. Ezra chapter eight. <clears throat> this is one of my one of my favorite ones. <coughs> Ezra eight. Now let's read here a, a decent section of this. Um Let's um, let's start in 15. Sergio, I'll have you read this. Start in 15, and you're going to read through to 23. Um, so just so you, if you guys aren't aware, what's happening here is the Israelites are now going back to Jerusalem after exile. So here's a situation where Ezra is trying to get these people back to back basically back to Jerusalem, and he's now gathered them at this river. So go ahead and start reading there at 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I looked for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joirib, and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edom, the leading man at the place, Cassiphia, telling them what to say to 
Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the sons of the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, eighteen. Also Heshabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons twenty, besides two hundred and twenty of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Okay, now listen listen to what takes place. <clears throat> so they're, they're there at that river. <clears throat> Go ahead. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Okay, now listen. Look what's taking place here. They're at the river, and Ezra tells the people to fast. And why, why does it, what's the necessity for them? Yes, they're trying to go back to Israel, of course. But what's the necessity? Why are they seeking God in this way? What does it say in verse 22? Right. He was ashamed to ask the king basically for protection back to Israel because he had already told the king, God's going to get us back there. We don't need your, need your band of soldiers, right? So now they're there and the people are wondering, uh-oh, maybe we should have took that band of soldiers. But Ezra's thinking, hold on a second here. I already staked God's reputation on the fact that he's going to get us there. I'm not going back and asking for that band of soldiers. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to seek God's help that God would actually do this for His own namesake, <clears throat> right? So it says, We fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened to our entreaty. Now that, now that's a great verse. I, I was reading some of these passages, uh, just kind of writing things down, preparing for this, and I have a section on my computer of ideas for preaching. And I just wrote that text over there. <laughs> I just, I like that passage. We fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened to our entreaty. God heard these people, and God answered these people according to their requests. And brethren, as we enter into this week of prayer and fasting, we got to remember this. Whatever things we're fasting and imploring God for, that He would hear and listen to our entreaty. What other, any other passages that come to your guys' mind? Fasting in the Old Testament. There's a lot of them, but. Samuel. Which one are you thinking of? <clears throat> yeah, so David fasting for his son. So let's look at that. Second Samuel 12. Second Samuel 12, let's read a few verses here. Um, 
Michael, can you read a 13 through... Let's just go to 17. David said, said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah, his wife, bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and, went in and lay all the night on the ground. And the elders of the house, the elders of his house, stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Yeah. So here's David. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. God tells him the child's going to die. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> God, God tells him the child's going to die. And David fasts. He fasts for his son's life, right? He fasts seven days for his son. That's in the, in the next verse there. On the seventh day, the child died. So David finds some great necessity here to get before the Lord in fasting in hopes that God might spare his son. Um, other examples in the Old Testament. <clears throat> huh? Moses, there's a plethora of options there, right? Um, Moses, you know, Serge and I were listening to a sermon one day on the way home, and it was in Spanish, and it was kind of, the guy was kind of talking kind of fast, so I couldn't track with it in some ways. So we had to rewind it for a second, but he had said something, I, we didn't, I don't think neither of us had ever even realized you know, you read about Moses and he fasted. You, you, we know, right, that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain. But what happened actually is Moses is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain. And then God tells him, go down. The people have been rebellious. Basically, they're worshiping this calf. So he goes down, confronts them, and then he goes back up and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights again. 80 days, 80 nights, Moses was fasting. It's absolutely incredible when you actually read the account and you realize that's what happened. But yeah, so you have that there. Uh, others that you guys think of. Examples. Nehemiah chapter 1. Okay, I didn't have that one down. Let's look at that. Nehemiah, well, you want to just read it, brother? <coughs> Nehemiah 1. Uh, Nehemiah starting, uh, I guess, verse 4. I, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Yeah, there you go. <coughs> Nehemiah fasting over the sin of the people. Others. I'll give you a, f huh? Job. Yeah, I had a couple of texts I thought to write down there, um, but I didn't. I didn't write any down from Job specifically. <coughs> Someone say something. How about uh, let's look at Second Chronicles twenty. Second Chronicles twenty. 
Second Chronicles 20. Here's Jehoshaphat and the enemies of Israel are coming up against them. And it, it's starting in verse 1. After this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. Behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek Yahweh and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So now he is saying, he's proclaiming a fast through all Judah, all of you. Proclaiming a fast throughout all Judah, and Judah assembled to seek help. So there's this idea again, right? They're fasting, and what are they doing? They're seeking help from Yahweh, from all the cities of Judah, to seek help from Yahweh. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek Yahweh. So you have it there. How about the situation in Esther? You guys remember what happens? <clears throat> She proclaims the fast. Why? Right. So Esther's going to go before the king, and she's got to go before the king because basically this decree's been made <coughs> that the Israelites are going to be slaughtered. And she's got to go before the king. King doesn't know she's that she's a Jew, and she's got to go before the king not having been invited. Right? And and what's her whole issue there? You can't do that. You go before the king in this situation, not having been invited, and you could die for that. Right? And so she she proclaims a fast. She tells the people, You go in fast, I will go in, and what's her what's her uh famous statement she makes before she Yeah. If I perish, I perish. <laughs> right? Uh and so, right, she proclaims the fast that God would deliver the Jews. Um, how about Daniel? Remember Daniel's fasting? Go to Daniel 9. Daniel 9, and we'll see him. Uh... <coughs> so listen to this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived that in the books the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, Daniel is looking at the prophecies of Jeremiah and he's realizing, hold on a second, we're coming up to the time in which God said we would be in exile. And then he says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And then he goes on in his prayer, praying, God, forgive us, restore us, be faithful to your promises, etc. So Daniel is 
fasting. Any other examples you guys can think of? <clears throat> Jonah. Yeah. What's the fasting there? Yeah, right? Jonah goes in, he preaches to the city, and the city proclaims a fast. A fast of repentance, seeking God's forgiveness. So you have Jonah. Um, how about this? Go, Psalm 35. Anybody think off the top of their head what David says about fasting in Psalm 35? You'll know it when we read it. But. Psalm 35, starting in verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. <coughs> they repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in the morning. But at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. So David is saying here, right, he has, he has done good to these people. And they've done evil to him. They, when they were sick, what did he do? He fasted for them. He prayed for them. And now these people have turned around and done wickedness to David. Now let me give you another one. In, in Joel. <clears throat> in Joel. <clears throat> Joel 1. 13 and 15, or 13 and 14. Listen to these words. This is God calling from the prophet to the people. God is calling them to consecrate a fast. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, <clears throat> because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house to the house of Yahweh your God and cry out to Yahweh. So now, oh, well, let me give you, turn over to chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Yet even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents, <coughs> he relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. So God, He's declaring to these people, declare a fast, call a solemn assembly. You guys have got to get something right. This is not right, what is happening here. You got to turn. You got to rend your hearts. Enough with the out external rending your garments and making things seem like you're distressed. You got to rend your hearts. You got to return to Yahweh. 
but he's calling them. Come in with fasting, weeping, mourning. He says, yet even now, if you return to me, he will, he will come. There's this, there's this sense, a solemn assembly. This is not, you get the sense, right? This is not a, this isn't a feast, brethren. This is not a feast. It's a fast. It's a solemn assembly. They're seeking the Lord. They're desperate for Him in what's happening here. Now, there's a lot of other <coughs> texts in the Old Testament, of course, on fasting. But let me ask you, in all these ones that we just read, what seems to be a constant theme in them? What I mean is, like, are these people just fasting just because they, they want to? Or why are they doing it? What's... Huh? Yeah, there's an urgent need. David's son is going to die. He fasts. The armies are surrounding Jerusalem. Or the armies are surrounding Judah, rather. Ju and, and Jehoshaphat calls for a fast for God's help. God comes to the people through the prophet Joel. He tells them, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Repent. Turn to Yahweh. The people in Nineveh, they hear the word of the Lord. And there's an urgent need there. we got to get right with God because He's going to turn this place upside down if we don't repent. Right? <clears throat> um, Esther, the urgent need. If, the, if something doesn't happen here, if the Lord doesn't come through for His people, we're all going to die. There's a great need of the people, and so they're seeking the Lord. They're desperate for Him. Now, let's look at some of the passages in the New Testament. Um, let's just look first at, at, <coughs> at uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 now, we dealt with this passage when I um, went through the uh, temptation of Christ. But here you have Jesus in the wilderness. He's fasting for 40 days, at the, at, you know, at, sort of as the beginning of His ministry in, in preparation for His ministry. So our Lord is fasting says in chapter 4, verse 2, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came, and you know what happens. But brethren, here, it, I recognize, right, there's, this is still not, not teaching in the sense of we're being taught something, but this is teaching for us because we're seeing our Lord do this. We're seeing Christ fasting. This is part of who he was, what he did. And not only that, this is something that I'm going to read something from this later. There's a very good book that Piper wrote on fasting. And one of the things he mentions in there that I just, I never thought about it this way. <clears throat> but the fact that Jesus actually triumphs over the devil through fasting. And, and he actually makes the point that our salvation, I'll just read it actually. If Satan had succeeded in deterring Jesus from the path of humble, sacrificial obedience, 
there would be no salvation. We would still be in our sins and without hope. Therefore, we owe our salvation in some measure, not to overstate it, to the fasting of Jesus. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He's fasting and he's, he's undoubtedly seeking help from the Lord as he's about to enter this, this time of temptation and this time of trial. And I think Piper hits it right on the head with that. To some degree, brethren, our salvation is staked upon the fact that Jesus Christ was out in the wilderness fasting, desperate for His Father, as He was about to endure temptation unlike any other. So you have Him there fasting in Matthew 4. We know Matthew 6, right? Jesus is teaching here on fasting. Now this is probably the most explicit teaching that Jesus gave on fasting. <coughs> but Matthew 6... These are the directions that he gives for how his people are going to fast. Look at this in chapter 6, verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others. <clears throat> but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, a couple things, right, that we can notice about this. <clears throat> it says, when you fast. What does that imply? You're doing it. That you're going to do it, right? Jesus doesn't say when you do something and then expects us not to do it. The whole point is, when you do this, do it this way. It means you're going to do it. That's part of what we're going to do as Christians. And he's given us instruction for it, right? Now, let me ask you another question, because this is kind of interesting. Jesus says, when you fast, don't look or be or act like the hypocrites. And you ever thought about what he's telling them to do? He's actually telling them to fast, but, but make it look like you're not fasting. Now, I ask you, doesn't that kind of sound on the surface a little bit hypocritical? Yeah. Anybody else think so or just me? Yes. <laughs> right? Huh? A little deceitful, right? And yet, Jesus is saying, they're the hypocrites. He's telling, he's telling us, fast, but don't look like you're fasting. Don't be like the hypocrites over there. <laughs> so we're supposed to fast, but not look like it, because the hypocrites do that kind of thing. But it kind of sounds like we're the hypocrites, because we're the ones that are fasting, but pretending like we're not fasting. So what's the hypocrisy? Think about this. What is in this situation here, in this story, What's the hypocrisy of the other people that are fasting? Why are they hypocrites? Huh? Okay. Now, that's true. Think about for a minute. What's the hypocrisy in that? Right? Because you're right. They're wanting to be seen by others. But what makes them a hypocrite? 
Right. Right. You're on it. You're on it. We're almost there. Anybody have something else to add to that to get us there? Right. But why are they a hypocrite in doing that? Right. Yes. So here's the idea, right? You guys are right. They're doing it to get, to get, they're trying to be eye pleasers to men. But they're putting on this show that they're doing it for the Lord. You see what I'm saying? This is the hypocrisy here. They want to make it seem like they're suffering for the cause of, for God's sake, for that they're seeking the Lord, but they're really just seeking the pleasing, the, you know, they're really just seeking the praise of men. This is the hypocrisy that's in this whole thing. Now, there's another example of this in the Old Testament. I want you to go back for a second and look at Zechariah chapter 7. Because this is an example of this kind of thing. So I want you to see this. Zechariah 7. Here's what's happening. The people are back in Jerusalem. They've started to build the temple. Things are kind of underway. (coughs) I think if I remember right, it like might be halfway done at this point. And, And what happens is, Oh, we're going to read it in a second, but I kind of want you to see where we're going. What happens is these people send a delegation up to the city, up to Bethel, to ask whether or not we should continue to fast just like we have been doing for the past 70 years that we were in, in exile. So they were in, they were in exile, they were fasting pleading for God to be faithful to His promise, to bring them back to the land. Now they're here back in the land. They're building the temple. They're doing all these things. And so the people are wondering, should we continue to fast? Should we not continue to fast? What do we do here? And now listen what happens. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev, now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of Yahweh, <clears throat> saying to the priests of the house of Yahweh of hosts and to the prophets. Now here's their question, right? Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So they're asking this question, should we continue in this? Then, verse 4, Then the word of Yahweh of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So think of the response of the Lord here. The people come up and they're wondering whether or not they should continue this fast that they had been going on with for so long. And God initially says to them, when you fasted, were you doing it for me? It's a rhetorical question, of course. The point is you weren't doing it for me. But it's interesting what God says right after this. Because if God just said that, if he just said, when you fasted, was it for me that you fasted? Then what? I mean, they might think, oh, 
Okay, so we're not supposed to fast. Let's go back and tell the people we don't fast. We're, not, we're, we're done with the fast. But God says to them in verse 6, When you eat and drink, do you do this for yourselves or do you do it for me? So the issue here is that the people, whether they fast or whether they eat, none of it's being done for the Lord. And so it's all irrelevant. It's all hypocrisy no matter what. Because none of it's being done for the Lord. <clears throat> and brethren, we got to think about this. Because fasting, you know what uh, um, <clears throat> Paul says in, in Colossians? Uh, you get these people in the early church that are practicing asceticism. Do you guys know what that is? What is asceticism? Someone tell me what asceticism is. Huh? Afflicting yourself. Punishing yourself. So that could take on many forms, of course. But Paul says in Colossians, asceticism is of no real spiritual benefit to, the, to yourself. <clears throat> it, it might have an appearance of godliness. But he says what? It's of no benefit in curbing the indulgences of the flesh. And so fasting is not a matter of asceticism. It's not just, oh, I just want to not eat and punish my body. It's not what fasting is. We've got to be aware that fasting, ought, it's not something that we do just for the sake of doing it. <clears throat> we're doing it because we're really trying to seek the Lord. There's a real desperate need here that we're trying to, we're trying to receive something from the Lord. And these people, they fasted in the fifth and seventh month for 70 years. And it was all for naught because they weren't doing it for the Lord. And so eating or fasting is no good if it's not done for God. Now, additionally, in Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 6, he says at the end of that section there, He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So brethren, the fact of the matter is there is a promise of reward if we fast and we truly seek the Lord. And you know what? It's not un spiritual or ungodly to fast that you might receive whatever reward it is that you're looking for. If it was ungodly and unspiritual, Jesus wouldn't tell us that kind of thing. <clears throat> but it's there for us to know that. You know what Hebrews 11 says about, about God being a rewarder? Anybody know it off the top of their head? That's right. Listen to this. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. God is not some mean, angry God in the sky who just wants to punish everybody 
and make everybody live a horrible life. God is a rewarder. He wants to give rewards to those who seek Him. And the promise of Jesus Christ is, if you fast and you give yourself to it, and you don't do it like a hypocrite does it, but you do it in a way where you're really trying to seek the Lord, there is a promise at the end of that road for you. There's a reward at the end of that road for you. And that ought to encourage us, brethren. That ought to encourage us. Let's look at another text here that involves Jesus and fasting. Go to Mark chapter 2. Now this is in both uh, Matthew and Luke as well. But (coughs) Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. You have a situation here. Jesus is confronted by disciples of John, uh, Pharisees, potentially also disciples of the Pharisees, and they want to know why Jesus' disciples are not fasting. Now, let's just read the... Can, can someone read this for me? I'm trying to minimize here my speech. Someone read this section. Mark 2, 18... Through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one will... No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worse and the worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Okay. So you have this situation, right? These people come to Jesus, they're saying, Hey, disciples of John are fasting. Disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. Your disciples don't fast. What's the deal here, Jesus? What are you guys doing over there? Now, to understand this whole thing, I want you to understand a little bit of the historical context of these people so you could see, okay, why does this take place the way it does? Why are the questions, the questions that are asked, and why does Jesus respond the way that he does? So, in the Old Testament, There was one prescribed fast that Israel was supposed to do. Does anybody know what it was? The the one, huh? No, but that's a good, that's a good, it's a good guess. Something similar. (laughs) Before an event. During an event. It was for the Day of Atonement. In fact, in Acts, it's even called the fast. So under the Old Covenant law, there was one prescribed fast, one sort of mandated fast. It was on the Day of Atonement. The people were supposed to fast, okay? But by the time, but by Jesus' day, fasting had become a pretty rigorous and even legalistic practice, Um, the, the Mishnah, which is, um, like the, they call it like the oral Torah. These are teachings 
traditions of Jewish people that have been written down. Um, it's not, you know, it's not the word of God. These are Jewish people that have written this stuff down. It's more traditional stuff. But in the Mishnah, <clears throat> we're told of all these other traditional fasting days that the Jews were supposed to fast on other than the Day of Atonement. And it became actually, within the Mishnah, you can see this, it became very traditional for Jews to fast two times a week. What does that sound familiar to? The, the what? Yeah, well, the Pharisees. What specifically? Well, something in the Bible that it sounds like. Fasting two days a week. Yes. So you get this man in Luke 18, right? In Jesus' parable, you have the Pharisee that goes up to the temple, and he's saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these wicked men. I fast twice a week. Jesus is not just pulling that out of a hat. It's not just some ran I, random statement. It's because often the Jews did do that. They fasted two days a week. That was a prescribed thing in the oral Torah. This, that's why Jesus is using this kind of thing. It was actually so common that even on late into the first century, it was still really common and there's a thing I have up here uh, called the Apostolic Fathers. It's writings of the really early church, first and second century. And there's a letter in there called the Didache. And the Didache is a letter that was written to Christians within the first century. So like before the year 100, probably in like the 70s. And it's a letter that has Christian teaching in it. So these early Christians are writing to each other and giving them Christian teaching. And in the Didache, it's very interesting. They actually say this. The Didache, whoever's writing it, wants the readers to distinguish themselves from the Jewish practice of fasting, which was still in that day very much practiced. Listen to what it says. Do not let your fasts coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday. So you fast on Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> so e even in the early church, on into the late into the first century, it was still very much practice for the Jewish people to fast two days a week. That was a, that was a rigorous pharisaical practice. And, and then Later on, as the Christian church is growing, these guys are saying, we don't, we're not associated with that kind of thing. And so they're saying, brethren, if you're going to fast, don't do it on Monday and Thursday because that's the hypocrite's day to fast. If you're, <laughs> you're going to fast, Wednesday or Friday. Now, again, I, I don't think we have to necessarily abide by this rule. But what I'm wanting you to see is that at the time of Jesus... This idea of fasting had been sort of transformed from desperate need, we fast, to rigorous, you know, legalistic practice, we're doing it twice a week kind of thing. And that's what, that's what it kind of, that was the temperature in the air as what was going on. Now, additionally, the fasting of the Jews on these particular days, you guys can look this stuff up. I'm not going to go into all of it right now. But on these particular days, 
that were that were kind of prescribed in the Mishnah, this oral Torah. There was specific purpose for these fast days. And they weren't really wrong. The people were fasting on these extra days because they were seeking forgiveness of sin. And not just in a sense of like, I sinned and now I'm going to pray and fast and ask for forgiveness for that sin. But rather, they're seeking forgiveness in a total sense. God, pardon us of our iniquity. They're looking for this. They're calling upon God to fulfill His promises in sending the Messiah. <coughs> Again, you see these things happening in the New Testament, and they're not just random occurrences. Look, for example, at Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, starting in verse 36 and 38, Jesus' parents bring him to the temple. And they find there this woman named Anna. Listen to what it says about her. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So again, look, the fasting that these people were partaking in, why is Anna doing this? Because this was normative for the Jewish people. They're fasting and they're waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. They're fasting and they're praying for it. God, be faithful to your promises. These kinds of things. And so at this time, you had Jewish practice of fasting, which had become often very rigorous and legalistic. <coughs> that twice a, twice a week fasting thing. Again, not some random thing that Jesus is bringing out in Luke 18. That was a common day practice. And you get this idea that these people are fasting for specific things. They're fasting, they're waiting upon God to pardon their iniquity. They're waiting upon God to bring the redemption of Jerusalem. The Messiah would come. So this is, this is what's in the air, brethren, as this situation unfolds with Jesus and these disciples of John and these disciples of the Pharisees. Now, they ask Him. They come to Jesus and they say, Mark, Mark 2, we're back there again, Mark 2. Verse 18, why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees, but your disciples do not fast? Now, does he say to them, yes, they do? Nope. <laughs> he doesn't say, yes, they do. He's not denying the fact that his disciples are not fasting. They're not. Jesus' disciples are not fasting. They're not partaking in any of that. <clears throat> and his response is one where he's trying to get these people to understand that there, there was uh, an appropriate time and place for fasting. But this was not an appropriate time. 
He says, listen to his, his first analogy here. Verse 19, Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So what's his analogy? Someone give me that in like normal people words. Okay, but what, break down the analogy so that we can understand it, just that. What is that? What's the ridiculousness of that? Right, yeah. Can you imagine someone who goes to a wedding and the feast is laid out and the cake pops her out and you ask him what he's doing and he's like, I'm fasting. Like, yeah. Brother, this, you're, this is the wrong, t you picked a bad day to fast, right? This is a celebration. This is a feast day. This is not a day for fasting. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the situation. Remember, Jesus brings this up to the, to the Pharisees. He says to them, you know, we, we, we played a, uh, what's the word he uses? <clears throat> he says some word I can't remember. The, the kids, he said, they, they played a song of dancing and you didn't dance. And then, they, and then we, sang it, we sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. The whole point is, you guys don't understand what's happening here. You're, you're not acting proper to the situation. You're, you're not, it's not right. You're not, you're not thinking right. You got it all backwards. It, wh what? I don't want to get too ahead of myself here. <laughs> So the, what Jesus is getting at is that these people are not recognizing the reality of who Christ was and what had happened now that he'd entered onto the scene. His point is the bridegroom has come. You guys are fasting and longing for the redemption of God's people. And here it is. It's here. It's like, you know, I, 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 get, a, I get a picture from my parents my, you know, 14th birthday of a car they're going to buy me, right? And I look at it for two years. And then on my 16th birthday, they say, Nick, the car's in the driveway. And I'm like, oh, wow, the car's in the driveway. And I'm still staring at the picture when the car is right there in the driveway. And these people don't recognize. Yes, they're fasting. They're longing for these things, the redemption of Israel. They're longing for the forgiveness of sins. They're longing for the Messiah to come. And then here he is on the scene. The bridegroom came. Here comes the wedding banquet and you're still fasting. You got it backwards. It's unfitting to fast at this time. It's very interesting because the language Jesus uses, it would not have been unknown to John's disciples. John spoke like this. I want you to look at John chapter 3. <clears throat> John 3, you remember this situation? Look at, uh, starting in verse 25. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John. So these people, here's John's disciples. They're coming over here to John the Baptist. And they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going to him. So the disciples of John are saying, John, 
You baptize a Jesus guy, and now they're all following Jesus. You see that? They think something's wrong. They think something's off. 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now watch. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now he's speaking of Christ here. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom. Here's John. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. <coughs> so these, <coughs> these disciples of John ought to already know this. They ought to already know that Jesus is the bridegroom that has entered in upon the scene. God has always spoken through the Old Testament as the, as the groom of His bride. And now Jesus enters in and is the fulfillment of all of that. And He's telling these people, I am the groom who has come for His bride. And John's disciples would have already known that kind of thing. Why are they even still fasting in this way? waiting for the Messiah to appear when He's already appeared. These people have it upside down and backwards. They're not recognizing it properly. The fact of the matter is, brethren, you had disciples of John, but those disciples of John had to at some point make a transition from being disciples of John to being disciples of Jesus. That needed to happen. And that did happen for many of them. You think about, for an example, <clears throat> for example, when Jesus first meets Peter and Andrew, you know who it says that they were disciples of? I guess I already kind of gave it away. They're, they're John's disciples. Peter and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist. And then they meet Jesus and they begin to follow Jesus. And this is what needed to happen with all the disciples of John. You guys are going to have to make a transition here. You're following me, and that's good. But John says to him, my joy is complete. I'm done. I'm decreasing. He's increasing. I'm just the friend who stands next to the bridegroom. I'm not him. And these people needed to make transition from John to Christ. They got to move. They got to move from being one man's disciple to another man's disciple. And they weren't. They, they didn't understand the times. They were confused. They would, did not recognize that it was not the time for mourning and weeping. It was the time for rejoicing. <clears throat> Jesus is in the flesh with His people. And so Jesus explains to them their inability to recognize with, with different, different ideas. He uses the bridegroom thing, right? How can the wedding guests be fasting when the party's happening here with the wedding? It's not fitting. It doesn't work. That's not how that's supposed to be. You got your times mixed up and you picked a bad time to do that. 
That's not right. Then he uses some other analogies. Maybe some we're not very that familiar with, but who sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment? <clears throat> now, good thing he gives us the explanation there because we don't know what, you know, I wouldn't have any idea what that, I'm like, oh, what does that even mean? I don't know. But he tells us, right? If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Right? So if you take, if you got this, you know, I've been wearing this shirt and a hole gets in it and I put a brand new piece of cloth in there that's never been washed or anything. And I sew it up real tight and then I wash it and it shrinks. That's a problem, right? Again, he's using these analogies to show these people you are not thinking properly. You're not understanding things rightly. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. So he's giving these people different you know, analogies here that they might see your thoughts are not functioning properly. You're not thinking right. You're not recognizing the reality that is before you. Both all these illustrations are to show them that they had it backwards. That's not the time. It's not fitting to fast when the bridegroom is there. But even embedded in this, again, is the reality that Jesus expects that his disciples will fast. Someone read verse 20. Mark 2, 20. <clears throat> Yeah, so there you have it, right? Jesus is even here still recognizing. Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Because, guys, <laughs> the bridegroom's here. It's not a time for mourning. Now my disciples will fast, but it's not now. It's not the proper time for it. It doesn't fit. I want you to read you this. This is a quote from Piper's book, <coughs> In regards to fasting, and it is showing the distinction of what now is Christian fasting. He says this, What then is new about Christian fasting? What's new about Christian fasting is that it rests on all this finished work of the bridegroom. It assumes that. It believes that. It enjoys that. The aching and yearning and longing for Christ and His power that drive us to fasting are not the expression of emptiness. Need, yes. Pain, yes. Hunger for God, yes. But not emptiness. The first fruits of what we long for have already come. The down payment of what we yearn for is already paid. <clears throat> the fullness of what we are longing for and fasting for has appeared in history and we have beheld His glory. It is not merely something that is in the future. We do not fast out of emptiness. Christ, has already in a, Christ is already in us the hope of glory. We have been sealed with the promised Spirit who is now the guarantee of our inheritance. We have tasted of the powers of the age to come. 
And our fasting, <clears throat> listen to what he says. Our fasting is not because we are hungry for something that we have not experienced. That's the distinction, brethren. You think of the fasting under the old covenant. What are they waiting for? What are they longing for? Something they haven't experienced. Something they need. Our fasting is not because we hunger for something we have not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. We must have all that is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit and cannot now <coughs> and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. The new fasting, the Christian fasting is a hunger for all the fullness of God, aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love and by the taste of God's goodness in the gospel of Christ. So there you have that, right? That is Christian fasting, brethren. It is a longing for God, not because we have had no experience of the Messiah and the forgiveness of sins, but because we have tasted it, brethren, and we want its fullness. You know, brethren, you know the Bible says we're, we're betrothed to Christ. We're, I mean, we use the word engaged, right? But who wants to stay engaged forever? I don't want to do that. <laughs> anybody, anybody want to get engaged and just kind of live like that for the rest of your life? No. You're, you want the fullness of that kind of thing. You want the fullness of that relationship. And what we want, brethren, is that. We want the completion of everything. We long for that with Christ. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love abide. But what's the only thing that's going to remain? Love. Why? We're not going to have faith anymore? No, brethren, because you're going to see it. You're going to know it. <coughs> We're not going to hope anymore. Well, what's hope? Hope is something you don't see. So eventually, huh? Yeah, who hopes for what he sees? Brethren, the reality is we're living in a realm here that yes, by God's grace is, 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 can be glorious at times, but it's, it is not its completion. You ought to have to some degree a discontentedness of what we're in. Lord, we want more. We long for more of you. We long for more. We want to be nearer to you, Lord. I want to be done with the engagement. Let's get married. This marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Um, so anyway, it, in Mark 2, right, Jesus is teaching them. The bridegroom was present, and it was so unfitting to be fasting. But he tells them, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away. My disciples will fast. Let me give you just a few other verses here before we end. These are examples of fasting after Jesus is now gone, right? Because Jesus says, I'm going to go away. My disciples are going to fast in that day, right? So did they do it? Look at 2 Corinthians 11. 
Second Corinthians 11. Paul is explaining here. <coughs> he has these people, these uh, um, enemies of his, so to speak, that are trying to downplay his ministry. So here, Paul is going to basically give a long list of all the things that he has suffered for the sake of Christ. Listen to what he says. Starting in the uh, second half here, verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews <clears throat> the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst. Now, you have that Bible open, Sergio. What does it say right after that? I'm interested. Never mind. Verse 27. Many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst. <clears throat> oh, all right. We're past it. We'll look at it in a minute. Okay. What does all your Bible say? That verse in 27. Many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst. Yep. Often without Okay, right there, often without food. This is, in my opinion, one of the worst jobs of translation that I've seen in the ESV. That should say, often in fasting. That's what the language says, often in fasting. And it doesn't even make sense to read it this way, because he already said, I was often in hunger and thirst, often without food. Okay, we already get that, Paul. You just said that. Literally two words before that. What does it say there? Uh, frequently without food. Oh, so it says the same thing. Okay. Does it have a note? It has a footnote. Yeah, yeah. I would assume the footnote probably says the same. <clears throat> okay. So, yes. This is a place where we see what Paul is talking about. All these struggles that he has been through and the trials, and the things that Paul has endured. And one of those things he brings out to the people often in fasting. He's fasting, brother. And why? Verse 28. And apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And am I not weak? So here's Paul. He's got a burden for these churches. So here he is. Often in fasting. Let's look at two texts here in Acts briefly. <clears throat> Acts 13. 
two times where we actually see this take place. Acts 13, 1 through 3. <coughs> says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, this is the start of the missionary <clears throat> labors of Paul the Apostle. It begins here, in this time of, of prayer and worship and fasting in this church at Antioch. They're praying, they're fasting, and, he, and it's here, brethren, where the work of Paul the Apostle begins. The Spirit of God comes, now, I don't know if it was audible, I don't know if they all just felt like Barnabas and Paul were the guys. But something happened where these people realized Paul and Barnabas are going out. And then, <clears throat> what does it say they did after that? <clears throat> Before that. Yeah. So they're, they're fasting and worshiping before the Lord. Spirit of God says, set apart Paul and Barnabas. You'd think they'd go, okay, we're doing that. Go. You heard him. Get out. But they don't do that. This says, then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here's these people, brethren. They're in the process of fasting and praying and seeking the Lord. The Spirit of God says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for this work. And then they go back to the Lord again in fasting and praying. I don't know if they're seeking confirmation or whatever they're seeking from the Lord. But these people are wondering, Lord, ought we really to do this? And then they do. They lay their hands on them and they send them off, brethren. Think of the weightiness of this. The weightiness of this. I mean, literally, you have half your New Testament because these people were praying and fasting. You realize that? You realize what was accomplished in the kingdom of God because of a people praying and fasting in Acts 13? What took place there? God used that, brethren. God used that. <clears throat> Look at Acts 14. This is the last one. Acts 14, 19 through 23. Paul here is about to be pushed out of Lystra. And he's going to return back to some of these churches. Listen to what it says. <clears throat> but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here you have another situation. Paul and Barnabas, they're appointing elders, leaders in the church. They're in this process of planting and building up these churches. And they go back through. And as they seek to place these leaders in the churches, brethren, they're fasting and they're praying for it. Again, you can see the sense, right, in both cases here of the sense of fasting that we saw in the Old Testament. What was that sense in the Old Testament? Why were they doing it? And so here's Paul. He's planted these churches. You ever think for a second how new these churches were? Paul hadn't been there very long ago. This was a new place. These were new people. A new church. And now Paul is going back through and he's going to have to set up leadership in these churches. And brethren, he blankets the whole thing with prayer and fasting. And this is our need. We need the Lord in stuff like this. We need the Lord, brethren, in all these areas. And so we see people in the Old Testament, they're seeking God's help. They're seeking God's blessing. We see the Lord fasting in the New Testament as He prepares for ministry. We see that He expects His disciples to fast, and He teaches them what kingdom fasting is going to look like. We see the disciples fasting after Jesus leaves. And what are they doing, brethren? They're fasting. They're seeking help. They're seeking wisdom from God. And brethren, we've got to give ourselves to this. Because we saw there in Matthew 6, right? What did Jesus promise? Reward that your Father will see and He will reward you. Brethren, there is reward for the people of God at the end of this thing, brethren. If we seek His help, if we seek His guidance, brethren, God will come through for His people. If we come and we pray, we fast, we seek God to build His kingdom, we seek His Spirit, we seek His strength, we seek His guidance, we seek to be used of Him, Brethren, we can rest assured that at the end of that, there is a reward for us. He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And so, brethren, as we begin this on Sunday, again, you don't want this to become something like it was for those Pharisees and other Jews in the days of Jesus where you think to yourself, let me pick a couple of days and afflict myself with no eating because that's what I'm supposed to do. You've got to get before the Lord and think, Lord, I want to be useful. I want this church to be useful. We want to see your kingdom built. We want to see people discipled into the image of Christ. 
We want to see missionaries sent. We want to see the city evangelized. Whatever things, brethren, that God is burdening upon your heart to see happen, that you would get before the Lord in prayer and fasting with a desperateness to see God do it. And, and, and pray that God would give you such hunger for it that you would say, Lord, if you don't give us this, I don't even want to eat. What good is it to me to go home and feast if I know you're not going to bless it, Lord? If I know you're not going to bless what our work is, what our hands are at. So, brethren, as we enter this week, I just I want you to be encouraged by that. What, what it was like on the Old Testament, these people, they calling these fasts, seeking the Lord's help. Our Lord Jesus walks in this. He teaches us of it. And then we see the disciples doing it, putting it into practice. <clears throat> um, anybody have any questions or anything about, I mean, I guess it could be about anything on this too, or even just prayer and fasting, the week, general, anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because if we're going to define fasting like scripturally, it never looks like anything other than abstaining from food. <clears throat> but I think there's a reason for that. It's not just because, oh, well, they just pick food, and so therefore that's what fasting is. I think the reason is, for example, what Jesus says to the devil when he's confronted, man doesn't live by bread alone. The idea is food is your sustenance for life. And so when we are fasting, what we're actually doing is actually setting that aside. Something that's actually like your phone is not your sustenance for life. To say I'm going to fast from Facebook is like, okay, you're just addicted. You just got to like kill it, throw your phone away or something. Yeah, that too. And, and self-control has to do with fasting too, right? Like not eating. You need to be self-controlled. But the point is actually grander than, you know, I want to just put away some little vice for a little bit. It's food is what is supposed to sustain me. And what I'm going to do is recognize that the food, which does sustain my body, is going to go over there. Because what I need more than that is God who ultimately does sustain me. So that's why I think food actually has that significance in Scripture in terms of fasting. They're not just randomly picking food because, well, let's just not eat food. And that's what we'll call fasting. It has that significance because of the meaning of food for people. And to set it aside and to seek the Lord is in a very real sense to recognize I don't live by bread alone. I live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if God does not come in some way, you think of, you think of like any of the examples in the Old Testament. Those armies are coming. They're going to destroy Israel. Jehoshaphat's like, call a fast. Why? Because it's like, guys, who cares if you go home and you eat and then tomorrow you die? You better get a hold of the Lord and get His help because who cares about your food? If you don't get God's help, you're dead. So there's this real recognition that really what we're relying on is God. 
and the food is it just it just becomes insignificant. So. I didn't even read this section. I don't know why he didn't. In Joel chapter 2. So he says, Yet even now declares Yahweh, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful. So to anger, abounding in steadfast love, he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. Now look. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. <laughs> Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. I think the point is everybody, all you nursing infants, nursing women, anybody, all of you are calling a fast. The consecrate assembly is happening. Everybody needs to be in. Now, I don't think that that means that, uh, you know, a mother who's nursing your child is obligated to go do a 40-day fast. Of course, it doesn't mean that. But the fact of the matter is, you know, fasting, again, it doesn't... We've got to, like, get away from the fact that it has to take on some, you know, legalistic form of... Even, even the idea that it has to be a whole day. Someone can fast and really seek the Lord and, and do it in a way where they don't have to not eat for a whole day. Someone can fast for a meal, you know, that kind of thing. So, and, and the fact of the matter is, uh, unless there's some kind of <clears throat> thing maybe that I am totally unaware of that would, that would hinder someone even from something like that, which I can't think of anything that would hinder someone from missing a meal. People do that all the time. Um, but I think ultimately what we, what we have got to deal with is there's, there's not a legalistic rule list of what that has to look like. But if we're going to enter into a time like this, right, consecrate a fast and calling the solemn assembly, we're gathering the people, the whole congregation, elders, children, nursing infants, everybody's coming out. And we're, we're doing this to try to seek the Lord. Everybody's going to have to do that in whatever way they can do that. You know, really just seek the Lord God. How would you have me to do this? What's doable? I mean, we don't have to just, we don't have to be unrealistic. And I, that's important, I think, for everybody here. You know, if you've never fasted before, don't go into the week of prayer and fasting and be like, all right, I'm fasting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Because you're going to get midday Monday and go, I'm going to die. You're not going to make it, right? So, and there's no necessity to do that. It, 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 if we have that mindset, it just becomes, we're just like, we're like Israel, uh, like it was in Zechariah. Was it for me that you fasted? And it's not. So I don't think that, I know this is kind of a, I don't, an example that's not exactly what you're saying. But I remember when we were at 
um, Shadow Hills years ago. And someone did a teaching on fasting. Maybe it was Jason. Do you guys remember Anthony Sperna? The really big kid? And he, it was, he was this guy who was trying to become like the world's strongest man. He was ginormous. It was like he was, I think he was Nephilim or something. He was massive. It was crazy. And he was like 16 years old. Anyway, so like the teaching ended and we're all fellowshipping. And he's like, brother, I can't fast. How am I going to be the world's strongest man? And I'm like, oh, brother. He was like, what is going on? You know, so <laughs> I know that's kind of, you know, not exactly where you're going with it. But I think people often do think they can't fast. They can't, they can't partake in this. And they can. They just doesn't have to look like, you know, a three-day fast or even a whole day fast. There's no regulation in all of that. But it's what, what we can do is seek the Lord, Lord, what would you have me to do? Uh, and, and do it in a way that honors you. Like if someone can fast, if someone can wake up and fast uh, for lunch while their kids are asleep and really seek the Lord in prayer, that's more honoring to God than someone who says, oh, I want to do it, but I really feel like I can't. And then they just force themselves to do some day fast when they really don't want to. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but I'm just kind of, I just think this text is interesting that just to kind of gives this general call for everybody to come out and nobody's excluded. And it seems that in God's mind, there's an opportunity for all the people of God to partake in this. Maybe not in the same exact way, but in some form or fashion. So. 